Good morning, Salt City. My name is Colin. I'm one of the college pastors here at Salt City Church. I have the privilege of leading uh, one of our college ministries called Salt Company. So we have two college ministries, one that meets uh, in Minneapolis, one that meets in St. Paul. And I have the privilege of leading uh, the Minneapolis Salt Company. Yeah, we, we love college students. Uh, we love uh, the city of Minneapolis. So uh, we're, we're continuing on in our series through the book of Exodus. So if you have a Bible, pull it out. We're going to be in Exodus 34 this morning. As you turn there, I have a question for you guys, which is, have you ever wanted to experience something glorious? Uh, this question has been particularly revealing to me uh, this summer, uh, right, right about now, as I've been watching some of the NBA Finals, uh, and I've also been keeping up a little bit with, with the Twins, and here's why I say this, I'm, I'm going to connect it, don't worry, uh, is that I just like long for the, the day when Minnesota brings home a major sports championship, because I've never been alive for one. Um, and I just want to, I want to prove, I want to prove that, I, that I'm a true fan to you guys, a true Minnesota sports fan, and here's how you know is because I went through the phase of optimism and positivity, and now I'm strictly at gloom. Uh, gloomy days behind us, we're in gloomy days, gloomy days ahead of us. But I do appreciate the, the occasional conversation with a Minnesota sports optimist. Uh, here, I, I often hear something like, next year, next year's the year. And uh, as a Twins fan, I think I've heard next year's the year for about 15 years. Uh, so, so we'll see. Um, or, hey, we got a star. At least we have a star. And, you know, stars are great, but they don't win championships all the time. Um, and and this, is the one, this is the one that, that gets me the most is, uh, hey, at least we made the playoffs this year. <laughs> Which I love. I love watching playoff basketball and playoff baseball. But there's something different between a normal game that gets you to the playoffs, or even a, a playoff game and a championship game. There, there's a difference in glory, in weight. It doesn't matter how many games you win in the regular season. As long as you end up in the championship and win it, that's, that's glorious. And so why, why I bring up the, the days of all of us, all our Minnesota sports fans gloom, is because it, it actually reveals something about us that, that we want to experience something glorious. We want to experience something glorious, and what that looks like for everyone in the room is different. Not, not everyone thinks winning a championship with a, with a Minnesota sports team is glorious, but there's a common thread through all of us that want to experience glorious things. They're important things. They're weighty things. They're praiseworthy things. They're things that matter and things that change us. So this morning, as we continue through the book of Exodus, we're going to look at, at a story and in that story, Moses, the, the character we've been following through the book of Exodus, is going to experience a moment like this, a glorious moment that, that changes everything for him. It changes everything for him, and here's what Moses is going to see in, in the text this morning, and what, by God's grace, we will also see, and that is that God's grace is glorious, that God's grace is glorious. And so this is the idea that we're going we're gonna to come back to again and again today. And here's, here's how we're going to see that. Here's kind of the flow of where we're going this morning. We're going to see who God is. We're going to in, get introduced to who God is. Then we're going to see who Moses is. Then we're going to see what God does. And finally, we're going to wrap up with how Moses responds to what God does. And we're going to 
ask the question at the end of this morning, have you experienced the glorious, weighty, changing grace of, of God? Have you experienced the glorious, weighty, changing grace of God? That's where we're going. So here's how we're going to get there. First one, who God is. So as we jump into Exodus 34, I want to I start by saying this is one of the most unique and specific revelations of God's character. God himself is going to introduce himself to us, introduce himself to Moses, and through Exodus 34, introduce himself to us. So this is Exodus 34, starting in verse 5. This is what it says. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So these two verses could be a whole sermon series on its own, let alone a whole sermon on its own, and I'm going to try to do it in point one of my sermon, so bear with me a little bit. This is what God says about himself. He starts with the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, the I am, the I am. He's introducing himself with with a common known name of his, saying, I'm the father of your father and their fathers. I'm the one who was, is, and is to come. I'm the I am. And we can become numb to the fact of what's happening here. That the God of the universe, the one who holds the world in his hand, who created everything by speaking it into existence, is now appearing before Moses in a cloud. He walks by Moses. In chapter 33, Moses asks to see the face of God. Like, God, I just want to see your face. And God says, no, because it's far too holy for you to gaze at. He basically says, if you saw my face, your face would melt off. That's how holy God is. That holy God in the midst of a sinful people introduces himself like this. Merciful and gracious. Merciful and gracious. Mercy and grace are words we throw out a lot in the church, and we kind of use them interchangeably, like they're the same thing, which they're not. So I just want to really quickly define these two terms for you. Mercy. Mercy is God's withholding of right judgment. Mercy is God's withholding of his right judgment on people. Grace is God's provision beyond what those people deserve. So mercy is withholding what we deserve. Grace is giving beyond, beyond what we deserve. So let me, let me kind of help us get this on the ground. In chapter 33, it was God's mercy that some of the people in Israel didn't die. It was his mercy that some of the people die, didn't die. It was God's grace that they continued to live. Okay, so let me, let me again try to say this another way in maybe more common language. This is what it's like. Imagine you meet a new friend for, or you're going to meet a new friend for dinner, you decide on a restaurant, you show up an hour late. It's the mercy of that friend that they don't say anything or ask you where you were. They don't even ask you why you were late. It's the grace of that friend that they pick up the bill anyways. Okay, so mercy and grace, two different ideas, but very important to the character of God. So do you see God's mercy and grace for you? 
It's mercy that you have breath in your lungs. It is grace that you get to show up here this morning and hear the word of God, that, you, that we get to open God's word together. So do you see the mercy and grace of God? This is what he goes on to say. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So if it wasn't clear based on the mercy and grace, maybe, maybe it's becoming clear that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that God is utterly not like us. He's slow to anger, which means God doesn't have that internal rage when someone cuts him off in traffic and costs him half a second but kind of ruins the rest of your day. Maybe that doesn't relate to you, but that would relate to me. I'm, I, I'm just like, I'm not slow to anger, but, but God is. God's not like us. He's full of love towards others. His eyes are constantly off of himself towards others. Not, not how others fail to hold up their end of the bargain, but his eyes are on how he can hold up his. So do you see the patience and faithful love of God? So what it goes on to say, verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. See, the, the primary way God shows his love for us is through the forgiveness he has shown to us. And, and I think there are probably people here this morning that are wondering, can God forgive me? Whether it was sin from 10 years ago and, and this brokenness and shame that, that's held on to you for, for most of your life, or maybe it was just this last week running back to you, sin that you said you'd never run back to, I think some of us can ask the question, can God forgive me? Maybe ask, like, why, why would he do that? Maybe he'd do that to Moses, but maybe not to me. Maybe he'd do that thousands of years ago, but not in this present day. And here's what I want you to be encouraged by, is that the forgiveness of God is not contingent on some external circumstance of what Moses has that you don't. It's rooted in the depths of who he is. This is God's introduction of himself, and he says he's forgiving. We, we are confident because in the forgiveness of God because we worship a God who forgives. So have you seen the forgiveness of God? This is what it goes on to say. Kind of change in tone maybe a little bit. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So though God is loving, steadfast, and forgiving, he's also just. But, but I, what I want us to see is that the justice of God is actually the love of God, and the love of God is actually the justice of God. We can't separate those two things. What I often hear people do is we like rank the attributes of God where we say he, he's forgiving and loving, but then when his forgiveness and his love runs out, then he'll decide to be just. But what's true about God is that he is both fully loving and fully just all the time. It would not be loving to let sin go unpunished. And the punishment of sin is actually loving. Upholding justice is actually the loving thing to do. And so some of you come in here and you've experienced horrible sin against you or sin against your family or loved ones. And here's what I want you to know is that God sees you, he sees sin, and that sin will be punished. 
Because God loves justice and he upholds it. And in his love, he is just. So do you see the justice of God? So here's what God did for Moses and what, by God's grace, he's doing for us this morning is in two verses and one really long sentence, he's summarizing his character. He's summarizing all of who he is and what he loves. So I think of these, this verse, these, or these two verses, this sentence, as God's elevator pitch, God's introduction of himself. And so I'm kind of picturing like a, a seminar uh, of people gathered, everyone you know, sitting in a circle, going around, introducing themselves. If I'm there, I, I stand up, I give you know, a really underwhelming impression of, you know, I'm Colin, I'm from Hopkins, Minnesota. I graduated from Southwest Christian High School. Then I went to the University of Minnesota where I graduated with marketing and entrepreneurial management. Now I work for Salt City Church, try to be a decent guy and not, not be a jerk most of the time, right? Like that's the best I got. And God steps up. You know, you, in, in an elevator pitch, you try to find something that's going to resonate with people. Maybe there are some Minnesota graduates in the room or Minnesota students. We know there are based on the woos from earlier. Try to find something that resonates with people, but God just unapologetically says, I'm merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So, okay, back to this leadership seminar how do you follow that up? I mean, seriously, what do you say after that, right? Like, there's just, there's nothing to say because it's not relatable. He's utterly unlike us. He's holy. He's set apart. But we all react to it in some way. We all have come into this morning with some thoughts about who God is. I bet a lot of us have our own elevator pitch for God. We don't have our own elevator pitch for each other, but we have our own for God. We've had our thoughts about God shaped since our first impressions. And even if throughout your life they've been reshaped, we all come in this morning with thoughts about who God is, what he's like, and what he does. And what we need to see from these two verses is what aspects of God's character we all tend to forget. Because we all tend towards one side of God's character and forget the other like some of us are so deeply aware of his mercy and grace and love that we forget that justice is a part of God's character, a good part of his character. We, we can forget that God's morally serious, that he cares about actions. And, and if this is you, like, man, I, I tend towards that. We need to be reminded this morning about the seriousness of, of how God takes sin seriously and how God is just. And others of us come into this place morally serious people. This is probably how, what Moses is like. And he, he knows the depths of God's justice, that God hates sin. I mean, I'm totally this person. I, I know that God hates sin. And so what I needed to be reminded of from Exodus 34 is that God is gracious and merciful. I needed to be surprised again by the grace and mercy of God, by the forgiveness of God for his people. 
with all this, with all these things, with, with everything that we come into this room thinking about God or need, needing to reshape about our thoughts of God, here's my question for you is, have you seen the glory of God? Because in order to see the glory of God, we need to actually grasp, grasp both his justice and his love, both how seriously he takes sin and how willing he is to forgive sin. I'm not asking you if you can re-list the characteristics of who God is, but have you really seen God for who he is? Here's how you know. When we see God for who he is, we end up reacting a lot like Moses did. So this is the second point, which is who Moses is. So if the first point was who God is, now we're going to see who Moses is. This is what how Moses reacts immediately after God introduces himself. This is what it says in verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin. Take us for your inheritance. So God walks in the midst of Moses. God walks before him and here's what Moses does. Moses falls on his face and begs for his life and the life of his people. God introduces himself to to Moses again and the only response Moses has is to fall and worship. Moses saw just a glimpse of his glory. Remember, he didn't even get to see the face of God. He just saw a glimpse of the glory of God and is completely undone by the presence of God is completely undone. You see, in, in the midst of, kind of you go back a couple chapters and Moses pleads for the life of his people. Moses asks like, hey, would you forgive their sin? But, but now you see Moses pleading for his life. He says that the people of Israel are stiff-necked people, but that he is also a stiff-necked person. That he says, forgive our transgressions. What we need to know is Moses is likely the holiest person everyone knows. Moses is the most religious person, has his life together for the most part, is leading the people of Israel. If you saw him, you'd probably be tempted to worship him because he's communed with God. He knows God like he knows a friend. He's saved his people, brought them out of Egypt. He's written books that now have been studied for thousands and thousands of years. He is remarkably successful, remarkably religious, remarkably holy in comparison to other people on the earth. And yet before God, before the glory and holiness of God, he's completely undone. He's completely undone. And I think many of us need to be undone by who God is. Or be, again, be undone by, by who God is. Because what we do is we either try to earn the favor of God through our merit, or we try to skirt the justice of God, thinking we can't be moral anyways. Here's what I mean. We fall into the ditches of thinking that grace is cheap. Thinking that God doesn't really care that much about justice. All God wants to do is forgive me, or we can fall into the ditch of moral superiority, thinking that God is just, and so therefore, because God is just, I'm going to work really, really hard to earn the favor of God. We all are, are tempted to fall into one of those two ditches, but the solution to this is not looking inside of ourselves 
Not looking to fix us, but doing what Moses does. Going before God, seeing who he is, seeing his glory and his holiness, and being undone by him. So what this looked like for me in my life is I grew up going to church and grew up, went, went to a, a Christian school. I did the right things and knew a lot of facts about God. I had my Bible, a lot of my Bible memorized, and if someone asked, I could have shared the good news of Jesus. I could have listed the characteristics that I listed this morning, but I was stuck thinking that I could earn my way to God, that I saw his holiness, and I saw his holiness as something to emulate through my hard work. So I was caught up in this moral superiority mindset and missed grace. I knew God was gracious in theory, but I had never experienced the grace of God. And so when I missed the grace of God, I missed the character of God. I missed God altogether because I missed his very heart. I tried to divert his justice through my works. And in doing that, I missed the heart of Christ. And so it took until a couple things in my life went wrong. I was in college and I fell on my face before God, pleading for mercy. Till I was undone by the character of God. I needed not only to be shaken by God and shaken by my own sin, which those two things both happened, but I also needed to be shaken by grace. And here's the reality of who God is. His graciousness, his, ex, his love of sinners, his love of sinful people is not a one-time offer, but a continual character trait of his And our need for grace isn't a one-time thing at one point in our life, but a continual lived experience. Like even now, I'm I'm transitioning into a new job here at Salt City where, where I get to lead one of our college ministries and feel so grateful and humbled to be given that opportunity. And yet, my my tendency is to kind of run back to this old way of living. That I need to I need to deserve grace in order to give grace, that I need to somehow have my life together in order to extend grace to other people. But the only effective way to share grace is to again be shaken by the grace of God and his love for sinful people. You see, in this transition, I've needed to be reminded that even as I take on leadership, it's not something that I earn, but but something that has been given to me that that I continually need to be given the grace of God and his mercy. That I need to be reminded that God extends mercy to grace abusers and to people like me who don't think they need grace. So my question for you is, have you been shaken by your sinfulness? And have you been undone before God? Has your life unraveled before the holiness of God And in response, you've fallen and worshiped and begged for mercy. Because this is the only response to seeing the holiness of God. But when you see God for who he is, that's not where you stay. Because when you see God, you also see his mercy and his grace. Because that's how he introduces himself. So have you seen God's love for sinful people? Have you seen God's love for you despite you being a sinner? 
So maybe you come here this morning and you have a good understanding of who God is, what his character is like, and you even call yourself a Christian. But if you haven't experienced this, this seeing the holiness of God and his glory, the undoing and unraveling of your sin and saying, I'm a, I'm a sinner that needs mercy. And again, looking back to God and seeing his grace for you, I just encourage you to go after, go into the presence of God. Go into his presence and seek him. Maybe you have seen God for who he is and in response you've seen the grace of God for you, but you still have this question, how do we reconcile the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man? Even if God loves sinners, how do we reconcile the grace of God with his love for justice? So this brings us to what God does. What God does. This is verse 10 of Exodus 34. And he said, behold, I'm making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as, not, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. So in verse 10, we see the grace of God in pursuit of his people. In, in this series through Exodus, we've come back again and again to this theme of covenant. And so I'm, I'm not going to unpack all of what covenant means, but a little trick for when you're reading your Bible or, or listening to a message is when you hear the word covenant or read the word covenant, think relationship. Think means of relationship. You see, because God doesn't make a contract with Moses that states stipulations for what Moses will do for God and how God will uphold some end of the bargain. Because what contracts are, contracts are a means to an end, a means to a project getting done or a payment being made. But we see God making a covenant with his people, a God who pursues the people of Israel with all of who he is, with his mercy and his grace forgiveness, and justice. So in Exodus, we've seen requirements of a covenant, but think more vows of a marriage, rails to run on, guidelines for the love of a covenant to be upheld. Because the covenant is the end in itself. It's not a means to get something better. It's, it's a, a covenant of relationship. That is the end. The relationship is what God is after He's after a people for himself. And throughout the Bible, we see the theme of God as a covenant maker, a covenant keeper. At, at the last meal Jesus has with his disciples, he takes the cup that represents the blood and he says, this is the symbol of a new covenant, a new covenant, a continued relationship with a new group of people that any man or woman can have relationship with God through the poured out blood of Jesus. This is what we celebrate when we celebrate communion, that God is continually making covenants and pursuing a people. This is what the book of Hebrews says. It says, therefore, he who is Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So this is what God does, is that he remains just by 
taking out the punishment of sin on Jesus. So in Christ, you can receive the gift of grace. You see, in Christ, we see the upholding of God's justice and the offer of mercy and grace and forgiveness. The way we reconcile the intersection of justice and grace is the cross. The cross is the means by which all sins, past, present, and future, are paid for, for those that are in Christ, which means that for those of us that are in Christ, all our sins, past, present, and future, are fully, freely, and forever forgiven. So if you are here this morning, God has pursued you in relationship. And you have to look no further than the cross to see that. He wants to know you and he wants you to know him. That's why he reveals himself to us in his word. So have you seen the glorious grace of God for you? Have you seen the glorious grace of God for you? So this is how we're going to wrap up this morning. So we're going to see how Moses responds how Moses responds to this glorious grace that he's seen. And as we get into the, the text here, I want you to notice something, that this is less of what Moses does and more what happens to Moses. This is verse 29 of Exodus 34. Then Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. As he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know what the skin of his face shone because he had been talking to God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face." See, Moses comes down the mountain and his face is shining. He doesn't even know it when he first comes down because he's not focused on that. He's focused on him having just been with God, having been in the very presence of God and seen his grace for a sinful man like Moses. But his face is so bright that people don't even want to come near him. Like they put a veil over his face. This isn't some imagery that, that points us to, to something else. It is imagery, but we really believe this happened to Moses. Like Moses invites you over for dinner. It's not just, wow, you got some good color, Moses. It's like, hey, make sure you pack your sunglasses because you can't, you can't like, you can't even look at him. It's, it's shining so bright. And so in response to this, people are afraid to come near him. You see, moments earlier, Moses is shaken by his sinfulness and just a glimpse at the glory of God, he's so set apart that people don't want to come near him. All it took was a glimpse at the glory of God for Moses to be now set apart. Why? Because he's participating in the glory of God. There's so much glory there that Moses had no choice in the limited interaction he has with him but to reflect the glory that he's now seen, the grace that he's now, that's now been extended to him. So what I want us to see is that when we get near the presence of God, when we see God for who he is, that it changes us. When we see God for his holiness, when we're undone by our sinfulness, when we see God's gracious pursuit of us despite that, 
When we see all that rightly, we, like Moses, will be changed. We, like Moses, won't look the same. We have to be changed when we get in the near presence of God. It's too great a thing to experience. It's too glorious of a thing to experience, to to have experienced it and not be changed. Now, our faces likely won't shine like Moses's did, but that's not the goal. Moses didn't go up there for his face to shine. He didn't use God to get something. He simply drew near to God for the sake of knowing God for the sake of relationship with God, and that's what changed him. When we draw near to God and see him for who he is, we too will be changed. But what we see in Moses is that the glory of his face shining grew dim over time. Because though the experience Moses had was glorious, and he did see the grace of God, there was something better ahead. There was something better coming, something more glorious, something of greater importance and value on the other side. This is how Paul summarizes the same idea in 2 Corinthians 3. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory For if there is glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Christian, the, the glory Moses experienced was coming to an end, but when we see the glory of Jesus and his death on our behalf and his victorious resurrection, when we receive the indwelling spirit, that is unfading glory. That is evidence of an imperishable kingdom. Throughout Exodus, what we've seen is is week after week ways that Moses is not like us, He doesn't point to us. He points to Jesus. That like Moses, Jesus is our intercessor. That like Moses, Aaron, and the Levites, Jesus is our great high priest. That Jesus is what we are not. And that is true. But in this text, it's a little different. In this text, we are what Moses was not. We are witnesses of an eternal covenant, not a temporary covenant. We are witnesses of a covenant of life not a covenant of death. We are witnesses of a ministry of righteousness, not a ministry of condemnation. We are witnesses of a glory that is unfading. So Salt City, does your face shine? Do you reflect the glory that you've experienced? So many of you have a heart to to reach your neighbors, family, friends, and coworkers with the gospel of Jesus, which is so beautiful. I love that heart. I love being a part of this church that loves to share the gospel with people. It's such a privilege and an honor. And good things to do with that are, are to come up with gospel conversation starters, uh, strategies for reaching more people, and those things are good and right. But that's not the ultimate way we share the glory of God with a watching world. You see, as I've been thinking about 
thousands of incoming freshmen coming to campus just blocks from here. Man, I so badly want them to know the good news of Jesus. So badly. And I, I spend hours of my day thinking, how can we reach freshmen with the good news of the gospel? And sometimes the answer to that is spike ball and fun activities and free food because freshmen love that. But that's not the end in itself. The key to reaching freshmen, the key to reaching students, the key to reaching coworkers, family, and friends is that those people would get a glimpse of a group of people who've been changed by the glory of the grace of God for them. People that have so intimately known God and his character and what he's like towards sinners like them. So that's what I need to hear. That the way to reach freshmen is not more strategy, but more time in the presence of God. More time going before him and seeing his grace for a sinner like me. So for you, the answer to making your face shine is not do more, not do more to make your face shine. Work harder. Instead, it's go up the mountain. Experience God's pursuit of you and bring that down. Bring the glory that you experience down to a watching world. Let's pray. God, thank you that you, you are holy and you are glorious and you are not like us. when we come into your presence, like this morning, when we're in your presence, we're undone. Because I see, I see my sin, I see my brokenness, I see the ways I try to work to be enough for you. But I needed to be reminded again this morning that you're a God that's gracious and merciful. That you're a God that loves sinners. And so if there's anyone here this morning that hasn't experienced the grace of God, God, would you, would you shake them with your holiness? Would you shake them with their own sinfulness? That they would see that they're a part of a stiff-necked people. But God, ultimately, that you'd shake them with your grace. That you run after sinners with mercy and grace and forgiveness. And so would you mark this church with shining faces, with people that have been changed by experiencing your glory. That we'd be a changed people who, because we've been with you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.